we would like to welcome to the club our most recent Patreon supporter, Jimmy C. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. When most people think about the state of Florida, they imagine happy thoughts of sun, sand, ocean, and Disney World. It is a vacation destination for most. The Amato family were lifelong residents of Chuliota, Florida. They were a happy, fun-loving group that loved their home state very much. The family never missed a Florida Gators home game and were quite active in many outdoor sports. However, their sunny, happy lives came to a violent and bloody end on January 24, 2018, when the youngest of the Amato boys, Grant, brutally murdered his mom, dad, and brother, all because they refused to continue bailing Grant out of trouble. Okay, on to the show. Chad and Margaret Amato lived in a tiny town called Chuliota, Florida, which is just outside of Orlando. The United States Census Bureau reported in 2010 that there were only approximately 2,400 residents of this quiet borough. Margaret and Chad were a sweet couple that had many friends and loved each other deeply. The couple had three children, all boys, named in birth order, Jason, Cody, and Grant. Chad Robert Amato was born on July 27, 1959. He attended the University of Florida, where he earned a bachelor's degree in science and pharmacy. The original plan for Chad was to become an industrial scientist, but he was passionate about being in the lab, so he changed his major and pursued his pharmacy education. Chad went on to work at CVS Pharmacy, where he was known to be very caring towards the pharmacy patients. He met his soulmate, Margaret, and they married on April 11, 1987. Chad loved the outdoors very much and enjoyed hiking, cycling, climbing, and sports of all kinds. But he also truly enjoyed sitting back and enjoying a good classic movie. Margaret Ann Wade Amato was born on July 11, 1957, in Walnut Creek, Florida. She went to Sir Francis Drake High School, and after she graduated, she went to the College of Marin. After her education, she became the client operations manager of the healthcare division at Nuance Communications. Margaret and Chad had three sons and a beautiful life together until their untimely deaths. Margaret was a horse lover and spent a lot of time at the local barn, working with horses and spending time with the people there that eventually became like family to her. Everyone loved Margaret, not just her husband and boys. She was described as sweet, funny, compassionate, and helpful, and was well-known for her quick wit and intelligence, and she was never condescending to others. Cody Winston Amato was born on September 22, 1987, as the second of Chad and Margaret's children. Cody went to the University of Central Florida and graduated in May of 2011 with a bachelor's degree in science and nursing. Cody went on to become a registered nurse anesthetist as well as an APRN, which stands for Advanced Practice Registered Nurse in 2017. When he died, Cody was dating his coworker, a woman named Sloan Young. People described Cody as one of the best people they knew because he cared about everyone. 
He was known for his positive attitude and how he treated people respectfully. He was probably a fantastic nurse because his nature was so gentle and he had a huge heart. Cody loved his younger brother Grant very much, and together they watched anime and even played together on a competitive airsoft team at one point. Grant Tiernan Amato was born on May 20, 1989. As adults, Grant and Cody both lived at home with their parents while Grant attended the University of Central Florida. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing degree on August 6, 2011. The brothers both dreamed of becoming nurses where they could help people. They were close and planned on living together in their parents' home after they retired and moved. The first steps in their plan were to graduate, take the RN license test, and have successful careers in nursing. Grant failed the RN license test on his first try, but on February 10, 2012, he passed. He was already working at the Orlando Regional Medical Center at this time, and he wanted to take his career even further, so he began to attend Barry University in January of 2015 to pursue a Master's of Nurse Anesthesia degree. Unfortunately, Grant eventually failed out of this program and stopped attending college in May 2016. Grant stopped working at the hospital in 2015 when he got another job at the JLR Medical Group, where he worked for about a year. Grant left that job too and started to work at another hospital in October of 2016. In June of 2018, he was fired after he stole some prescription medication, propofol, and then administered it to patients that he said, quote, were not being adequately relaxed by doctor-ordered medication. For reference, Propofol is a drug that, according to Drugs.com, is, quote, used to put you to sleep and keep you asleep during general anesthesia for surgery or other medical procedures. It is also used to sedate a patient who is under critical care and needs a mechanical ventilator. Grant was charged with grand theft as a result of this incident, but charges were later dropped. Depression set in after he lost his job, and like many other depressed people, he was sleeping all day long and up all night. The habits left him with little to do at night, so Grant turned to the internet. He began pursuing pornography websites, and in July 2018, Grant met a webcam girl who called herself Sylvie. She was from Bulgaria and was very beautiful. For those that don't know, a webcam girl is someone that often poses nude or semi-nude and can perform sexual acts on camera in exchange for money. Grant fell in love very quickly. You could say head over heels in love with Sylvie, whose real name is Sylvie Ventisilova. If you were to ask Grant about his life during this time, he would say his life was great and on track. In November of 2018, the grand theft charges against him were officially dropped. His family helped financially and got him out of trouble. He was under Sylvie's spell, and while the website charged him by the minute for his viewing pleasures, he began sending her money and gifts, such as clothing and toys intended for sexual use. She made videos wearing the lingerie Grant sent her, while also using the toys he sent. Grant was still unemployed during this time and had zero means of providing these things to his internet girlfriend. He had a lot of problems, the least of which was employment status. You see, Grant was slowly and methodically stealing money from almost every member of his family. These family members included his father, mother, and brother. 
Sylvie and Grant started exchanging texts in addition to photos and videos. There were hundreds, maybe thousands, of these exchanges that Grant saved on the separate thumb drive. Sylvie became curious about how he had so much money, so he concocted a story about being a professional gamer that owned his own house and drove a BMW. She had no idea about the family that he was financially draining. Towards the end of 2018, Grant's parents found out that he stole upwards of $150,000 from them and that he also stole about $60,000 from his best friend and brother, Cody. The family discovered that he took Cody's guns and sold them too. One of the ways that Grant was able to steal so much money from his family without them knowing was that he took a loan for $65,000 on his parents' house. He also stole their credit cards, racking up thousands of dollars in debt. On December 20th, 2018, at 2.43 p.m., Grant was reported missing by his mom and brother Cody. They reported that the last time they saw Grant was on December 19th around noon. He left the house without saying anything. However, he texted Margaret later. Grant made some concerning statements about how he couldn't handle everything. She was worried about what he would do. Margaret only could imagine Grant harming himself, but never anybody else. She, as well as the rest of the family, felt confident in that. After all, Grant had firearms and the family didn't know what kinds or how many guns he had, nor did they know how many he took with him when he left. Margaret and Chad told police Grant had been depressed, possibly suicidal, and though he wasn't medically diagnosed, he did recently see a counselor. They also said that within the last several months, Grant lost his job and he failed graduate school. Police entered Grant into their database as missing and with an endangered status because the officers thought his safety was their biggest concern at the time. On December 21st, Grant was found by the Apopka police at his grandmother's house in Apopka, Florida. Grant told the police that he was fine and wouldn't hurt himself. He explained that he only needed to get out of the house and away from his mom. After they did a brief evaluation, police determined that Grant wasn't a danger to himself or others and that there was no need for further psychiatric assessment. They also removed him from the missing and endangered list. When Grant's family found out he was at his grandmother's house, they went to Apopka and took turns watching Grant, believing he needed serious help. His parents and brother Cody held an intervention for him. They firmly believed he needed professional help because he was having such a mental breakdown, but also because he stole so much money from them. His dad would have to work for much longer than initially planned, and the retirement dreams he and Margaret shared were looking like they were never going to come to fruition. They told Grant that if he didn't go through a 60-day internet and sex addiction program, they would kick him out of their house. Furthermore, they would no longer support him financially or otherwise. He agreed and entered into a behavioral rehab program in Fort Lauderdale on December 22nd. While Grant was in rehab, his family went through his computer and found Sylvie's contact information. They sent her a message telling her the truth about Grant. He was not a wealthy professional gamer who drove a BMW. In fact, he stole all of the money he spent on her from his family. She was furious he lied, so she cut ties with Grant completely. 
Grant checked out of the rehab facility on January 4, 2019, and went back to his parents' home. After his time away in treatment, his parents told him there would be rules, and that if he broke any of them, they would immediately ask him to leave. One of their conditions was that he was forbidden from communicating with or sending anything to Sylvie. He struggled with these rules and was later quoted in his online porn group, as reported by ClickOrlando.com as writing, I am unable to function normally without her, and I will never get over her. Naturally, like most people with an obsession, he couldn't stay away from Sylvie. Because she blocked Grant on all social media, he was only able to attempt contact by DMing her public Twitter account. Grant's father found out that he was still trying to connect to Sylvie despite his stern warning not to. The family was fed up and they finally decided to practice some tough love and Grant was ordered to leave. On January 24, 2019, the family members living in Sultan Circle had their final confrontation with Grant one they believed would result in Grant finally taking some responsibility for his actions. However, things took a dark and disturbing turn when Grant murdered his entire family in cold blood, stole whatever else he could get his hands on, and run while trying to make the whole thing look like his brother Cody did it. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Get mouthwatering seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door with my friends, HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh makes cooking at home fun, easy, and the best part, affordable. HelloFresh's recipes are so delicious. They have five-star recipes more than any other meal kit on the market, so you know you're going to get something delicious. You know, the average trip to the grocery store takes 41 minutes, and I don't know about you, I don't have a lot of time to spare. That's over 35 hours a year. That's time I could be spending making this podcast, which basically means that HelloFresh saves time and stress effortlessly. The packaging HelloFresh uses to ship your food is almost entirely made from recyclable and or already recycled content. Finally, HelloFresh is flexible and it fits your lifestyle. You can easily change your delivery days or food preferences, skip a week, whenever you need. One of my favorite recipes has to be the balsamic fig chicken with roasted potatoes and mixed greens. If you want to experience the mouthwatering joy that comes from watching someone you love cook you food or even just cooking it on your own, go to HelloFresh.com slash TCFC10 and use code TCFC10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. So I'm back again to talk about my favorite wine service, Wink. That's spelled W-I-N-C. Wink makes it easy to discover great wine. Just fill out Wink's palate profile quiz. There's questions like, how do you take your coffee? How do you feel about blueberries? Then, after all of that, Wink sends wines curated to your taste. So the more wines you rate, the more personalized your monthly selections are. I'm a huge fan of red wines, and that's what I typically get in my monthly order. Shipping is covered, and if you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you'll love. There's no membership fees. You can skip any month and cancel any time, although you won't ever want to. So sit back and relax or celebrate with your glass. You have finally discovered the best way to find new wines that you'll love with Wink. 
Discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash truecrimefanclub. You'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash truecrimefanclub for $20 off. Trywink.com slash truecrimefanclub. Cody didn't show up for work the next morning, January 25th, which was unlike him. So his co-workers, Chris Sisko and Sloan Young, called 911 for a wellness check. Around 9.17 a.m., the police went to the Amato house to check on Cody. They checked all of the doors and windows, but they were all locked. Police called the cell phone of everyone that lived in the home, but no one answered. After getting no response from knocking or calling the family, they entered the house through the back door. Police announced their entry as they walked in, but it was deadly quiet. Almost immediately, they found 59-year-old Chad lying on his back in the kitchen with two bullet wounds to his head. Chad was shot execution-style while on the kitchen floor. 31-year-old Cody was found in the home storage room. He was found in the fetal position and he had blood oozing out of his eyes. Cody looked like he just returned from a work shift because he was still wearing his scrubs and his empty lunchbox was lying nearby. It looked like Cody's body was moved from its original position and there was a 9mm gun lying beside him. The crime scene was horrific and there was blood everywhere. Lastly, police located 61-year-old Margaret in the home office chair, slumped over the desk with blood all over her face. The office was located near the kitchen. Margaret sustained one bullet wound to her head, also execution style. It was beyond the imagination. There was blood everywhere in the house, yet there didn't appear to be forced entry anywhere. And it certainly didn't seem to be a robbery as the house wasn't ransacked and no valuables were taken. There were several weapons in the home, so police were unsure if guns were stolen. Police were familiar with the Amato family from their dealings with them the month before, and they knew who Grant was and that he lived with his parents and brother. But right now, both he and his car were nowhere to be found. Police immediately issued a bolo or be on the lookout to other police agencies so they could stop Grant if they encountered him. On January 25th, police went to speak with Jason Amato, the eldest of the brothers. He was working, so they found him there and proceeded to give him the life-altering news that three people were found dead in his parents' residence, and though they were presumed to be Jason's family, the bodies weren't identified officially. Police asked Jason if there was anyone that would want to harm his family, but the only thing he could think of was a recent situation with his brother Grant, who was talking to a girl in Bulgaria, and he had wired her an excessive amount of money money that he stole from his parents and other brother, Cody. He went on to explain that he wasn't sure if Grant owed this woman money or was in some sort of trouble, but after his mother found communications that the woman sent to the house, the whole family stepped in and the next thing he knew, they were staging an intervention and sending Grant off to a rehab facility, which was the last time that he saw his youngest brother. He admitted he wasn't very close to any of his family and never really was. The police asked Jason if he knew that Grant was stealing from the family, and he said he did. He didn't agree with them always bailing Grant out, and it was a sore spot between him and the rest of his family. 
Jason went on, saying that the last time he spoke with his mother, she indicated that Grant was doing better and seemed to be on track. This conversation was only a couple of weeks ago, so it was shocking that things spiraled to this point so quickly. As the interview progressed, Jason informed police that he received a call earlier that morning from Cody's employer saying he didn't show up for work. They called him because he was Cody's emergency contact. Jason tried calling his parents, but they didn't answer. He called a few other friends and family members, thinking that the most likely scenario was that they were all busy getting Grant out of some different kinds of trouble. Not long after the first call, Cody's employer called Jason back, saying that the police would be calling him shortly. He immediately knew something happened that involved Grant. But even in his wildest imagination, he could never have dreamt of what happened. Police had to do a thorough investigation, so they searched Jason's car and home and looked him over. But they didn't find any blood or bruises on him, nor did they find a weapon. Because of his rock-solid alibi, the police immediately dismissed him as a person of interest. Investigators interviewed as many family and friends of the Amatos as they could. They came across a neighbor of the Amatos named Jennifer Sawyer, who told them she heard gunshots between 8.30 and 9.30 p.m. on January 24th. She heard a few shots, one right after the other, and thought it was less than five shots, but she couldn't be sure. The investigators also interviewed Cody's girlfriend, Sloane Young. She was one of Cody's co-workers that called the police when he didn't arrive to work the morning of the 25th. She reported to the police that Grant stole all kinds of money from his parents and Cody. She said that he also took a bunch of Cody's guns so he could sell them. Sloan claimed that Cody told her he was afraid Grant would kill everyone, and he seemed to be going down a dark path after he was kicked out of school. Sloan also told police that she was at work with Cody on January 24th when he got a phone call from his dad. He hung up the phone, seemed agitated, and said he had to go home to deal with some family business. She said she texted him later and he responded, saying he was fine and told her not to worry. It was so unlike Cody to miss work that she and their other co-worker, Chris, called the police for a welfare check. The investigators continued collecting evidence while searching for Grant. They were able to determine that the last activity on the office computer, which is where Margaret was found dead, was 4.44 p.m. on January 24th. They also discovered that someone searched Chad's cell phone for information on recovering iPhone passwords and wiping the data on an iPhone. Further, it looked like someone cleared the call log on Chad's phone. There were two calls from Cody to Chad that appeared on Cody's phone, but not on Chad's. Around midnight on January 25th, a banking app was accessed from the phone and money was transferred to Grant. Autopsies were performed on all three of the Amados on January 26th by medical examiner Tara Jones. It was determined that Cody couldn't have committed suicide. The manner of death for all three of the Amados was listed as homicide. The autopsy results, coupled with other evidentiary items, led police to determine that everyone was shot between 10 p.m. on January 24th and 7 a.m. on January 25th. Grant's toll records were used to locate him, and he was eventually arrested on January 26th at around 1 a.m. at a Lake Mary hotel. He was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. Naturally, the investigators searched Grant's motel room as well as the computer and flash drive they found. 
It looked like Grant connected Cody's phone to his laptop and transferred the data, but he also appeared to be trying to wipe Cody's phone clear of any traces he was using it, especially when he was pretending to be Cody. The computer has images of Cody's credit cards, driver's license, pictures of his parents' checkbook, and other miscellaneous debit and credit cards. The investigators determined that most of the money transferred off of those credit and debit cards was used towards Grant's internet porn addiction, as well as his obsession with Sylvie. Another important item of note that police found was a pair of black leather gloves that later tested positive for gunshot residue. Grant's car was located at the Doubletree Hotel, and inside, they found a note that appeared to be from Cody and written by Grant. The letter indicated some of the ongoing family issues, but also contained the following quote, I said I'd take care of all of your problems at the house, and I have. No one will bother you again regarding this. Just please come home. Later in a police interview, Grant admitted that he wrote the letter. Grant agreed to go to the police station for a formal interview, so he went with investigators to the Seminole County Sheriff's Office around 9.30 a.m. on January 26th. He was asked about the note in his car. It was baffling and made no sense. Grant told them that he was documenting the conversation he had with his brother, and he wanted what Cody said written down. Again, investigators told him that they didn't believe him. His story just wasn't plausible. Eventually, he started talking openly to the investigators about what happened on the cool, clear evening in the peaceful neighborhood he grew up in, where he had many privileges. On the evening of January 24th, Grant got into an argument with his dad about Sylvie and the money he sent to Bulgaria to her. He said his dad gave him an ultimatum that if he wanted to stay in their home, he needed to complete a 60-day sex and internet program rehab. If he wouldn't go to rehab, then they wouldn't pay his future debts, and there would be some rules, such as no internet after midnight, limited TV access, and he'd have to apologize to the whole family. He said he entered the program but left on January 4, 2019. He claimed that he went back home and his family held a meeting, giving him a list of rules he was expected to follow, and if he didn't, he'd be kicked out immediately. He agreed at first, but he didn't think the rules were fair, he was in love with Sylvie, and they had a real relationship, so he couldn't understand why his family didn't see that. His dad found out that he was still trying to contact her, and on the night of January 24th, his dad came home and confronted Grant about talking to Sylvie, telling Grant that he had to leave. He said his dad became physical, grabbing him by the shirt, but he didn't hit him. He said his mom wasn't involved, but rather she was working at her desk in her home office. Over the next several hours, he packed his stuff and loaded the car while he and his dad continued arguing. He said that he had left his parents' house between 9 and 9.30 and waited for his brother Cody at the end of the road. He met with Cody, who told him to go home and make things right. The investigators told Grant that his story didn't make sense. Why would he randomly run into Cody on the side of the road? Grant admitted that he didn't wait on the side of the road for Cody, and rather, he waited at home until Cody arrived. After he talked to Cody at home, his brother told him that he would handle everything, so Grant left. He said he went back to his parents' house on January 25th, but he decided not to go inside at the last minute. 
He said he hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary at his parents' house. The police countered this, saying that Grant did see something unusual when he went back there. He saw a police car and news van parked in front of his parents' subdivision. They asked why he didn't go up to the house to see what was happening, but he didn't answer. He finally admitted that he went to a nearby Panera Bread restaurant to use their Wi-Fi to search for the top news stories. He saw an article about a shooting in his parents' neighborhood and that he saw the fence and the driveway in the video and thought to himself that it looked familiar. They asked Grant why he didn't contact his family after seeing the article, but he once again couldn't come up with an answer. He told police that he was very close with his brother Cody and repeated multiple times that he wasn't responsible for his family's deaths. However, he did admit that he was the only one with the motive and opportunity to kill them. They showed him crime scene photos, asking if he had any remorse for killing his family. Grant would only respond that his family was blaming him for months for ruining their lives, so everyone may as well blame him for killing them all too. After this interview, the police didn't have quite everything they needed to charge Grant since he hadn't confessed yet. They had to let him go, but it only took about two days for them to get the warrant they needed, and they went and rearrested Grant, charging him with the murder of his mother, father, and brother. While he was being held, his only surviving family member, his brother, Jason, went to visit him. Jason confronted him, asking Grant why he killed their family. But of course, he didn't receive any answer. And even if he did, what kind of answer could or would suffice? There was simply no reason or answer for the violence Grant inflicted upon the people that only tried loving and helping him. Grant was denied bond at his first hearing, but surprisingly, he was granted it at the second hearing for $750,000, which represented $250,000 for each of the victims. There were also some bond conditions listed that Grant was expected to follow, or else he would forfeit his entire bond. Some of the terms included staying away from computers and the internet. Grant had to wear a monitoring device and couldn't leave Central Florida. And worst of all, he couldn't have any contact with any witnesses in the case, which amounted to his own family still alive. He also wasn't permitted to access the family's substantial estate. Grant had to forfeit his passport, but that was the least of his concerns, as he had no money or means to pay for his defense. His brother Jason refused to bail him out, so he sat in jail awaiting his trial. Grant had email access when he was waiting for his trial to begin, and appallingly, he emailed a New York writer and filmmaker requesting help in raising the bond money that he would need to be released from jail to wait for his trial to begin. Grant's murder trial began on July 23, 2019. His jury consisted of eight women and four men. Judge Jessica Rexlider presided, and the state's case was led by Assistant State Attorney Dominic Leo and Assistant State Attorney Stuart Stone. The prosecutors laid out their claim, much of it relying on Grant's admission about how much his family bailed him out, as well as his apparent obsession with a woman that didn't love him back. They reminded the jury repeatedly about how he stole money from his parents and brother and presented himself as a wealthy businessman who spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on his internet girlfriend, the same one that abandoned him as soon as she found out he wasn't wealthy at all 
but living at his parents and bumming off their generous nature. They also reminded the jurors that there wasn't anyone else with a motive to kill this loving family. No one except Grant. Prosecutors showed how Grant tried to stage the scene to make it look like Cody killed his parents, then committed suicide. The evidence police collected was also introduced at the trial. They showed how Grant used Chad's fingerprint to gain access to his phone so he could transfer money to his account and then tried to wipe the phone clean. The defense team was made up of public defenders Jared Shapiro and Jeff Dowdy. Their main argument was that Grant had no motive to kill his parents and brother. They tried to back up this completely absurd defense by telling the jury that Grant was close to Cody and that there was no issues between him and his mom. They tried to say that the prosecution was grasping at straws to create a theory to match the evidence that they manufactured to create a timeline that didn't make sense. They tried saying all of the evidence was circumstantial and that the Seminole County Sheriff's Department didn't properly investigate the case as they focused only on Grant as the main suspect and didn't even consider other suspects. Of course, this was such a ridiculous defense. But on the other hand, what else could they say to defend this cold-blooded killer? Not surprisingly, Grant chose not to testify. The trial ended on July 31, 2019, and the jury was dismissed for deliberations. They were out for over eight hours, and they finally came back with a verdict of guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. On August 12th, Grant was scheduled for the penalty phase of his trial. The jury may have recommended the death penalty, and while they deliberated for nearly three hours over that very issue, they ultimately couldn't come to a unanimous decision, so Grant was sentenced to life in prison. He appealed his conviction on August 15, 2019, and that appeal is still currently pending. Grant remains in the Holmes Correctional Institute in Bonifay, Florida, and will stay there while he serves his life sentence. It's highly unlikely that his conviction will be overturned, and he will probably have years of appeals ahead of him. But at least, According to the criminal justice system, he is where he belongs. Jason Amato still lives in Florida, but without the family that he loved, even if he wasn't particularly close with them. He will never be able to pick up the phone and talk to his parents or brothers about mundane things. And that is yet another tragedy and this sad story. According to multiple guestbook entries on his online obituary, Margaret and Chad intended to retire in Tennessee. Chad described Margaret as his, quote, soulmate on the same spiritual wavelength. She is the moon to my son. Theirs was the kind of love we all hope and dream of finding. And at least, they were together in death. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written by Mary Cole, researched by Haley Gray. 
Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. I'm your host, Lainey.